we go. Good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you this morning. We are wrapping up this week and next a series that we've been doing all fall from the life of David out of First and Second Samuel. And we come this morning to the last chapter. We're going to skip way ahead from where we were uh, because Advent is right around the corner. Can you believe that? Two weeks. And then we head towards Christmas. But this morning we're going to look in Second Samuel chapter 24 at the last scene in the books of First and Second Samuel, David's life. And so we're going to, it's, it's a very strange passage, uh, it's very hard, it's confusing, but we're going to try to make sense of it, I hope. Uh, hopefully I'm not confused, because then, then we're all in trouble. Uh, so let's look together, if you would, if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then verses 10 through 25. It'll also be printed on the screen behind me, it's printed for you in your worship folder as well in the insert. So let's read this passage from the end of David's life, okay? Second Samuel 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And then down to verse 10. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go, Say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Not very good options. Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people. It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and have done, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And God came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up at God's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, 
Arana gives to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arana, No. I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) I'm very intimidated by this text as well. Uh, These last four chapters in the book of 2 Samuel are flashbacks. So chapter, chapter 21 through 24 are dischronologized. They're taken out of the rest of the story, and they're flashbacks to events that happened later, you know, at different points in David's life. And so they're meant by the compiler of this material to be a summary of the main themes of his life. And this is true of 2 Samuel chapter 24, and for that reason, it's very important. Now, we're going to see three things this morning from this passage that I think are true of everything that we've seen in David's life from the very beginning all the way to this morning, okay? These three things. First, we have to ask the question, what exactly is David's sin? In other words, why is God so mad at him and Israel? So what is his sin? Secondly, how does God deal with his sin? I mean, what does he do in response to David's sin? How does God show both justice and mercy here in this passage? And then thirdly, how does what happens here point to God, what God would ultimately do to deal with sin in the way that David asks him to in his life, to put away his sin, to accept him and to receive him into his presence? So those three, those three questions, those three issues we've got to deal with this morning under the headings of the census, the plague, and the sacrifice, okay? Those three things, okay? First, so let's begin and let's try to make our way through this. First, what is David's sin? I mean, why is God so mad at David here? And the answer, of course, is the census. If you look there at the beginning of the passage, David calls for Joab, the commander of his army, and he gives him a command. He says, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Beersheba. Dan in the furthest northern part of the country, Beersheba in the furthest south. So go throughout the whole country, he says, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. He's taking a census. And in the first five chapters of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch, God warns Moses against censuses, but there are also places, if you read really carefully, where he seems to, to even command them. God commands censuses to be taken. So we've got to ask, then what is it about this census that's so wrong? Why is God angry with David for doing this here in this passage? Okay, so let's think about that for a minute. Because really, if you think about just modern equivalents, there are all kinds of ways that census data can be helpful, Right? We take a census to figure out how to get the different governmental agencies to allocate resources where they're most needed. A census can provide helpful information to businesses uh, to help them thrive and to make sure people are cared for and that they have their needs met. But David is not concerned in any way with, with those kinds of things. David has a much different agenda. And nearly all the commentators make this point. They say what David's doing, if you look, what, what David is trying to, to do here is David wants to know how many warriors he has at his disposal. David is trying to ascertain how big his army is. That's what he wants to know. And Joab, you see there, though he isn't portrayed anywhere in these stories as especially astute spiritually, (laughs) he picks up on what's going on in David's heart. And look what he says there in verse 3. He says, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times, as many as they are, but why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? 
So Joab, Joab picks up on what's happening in David's heart. He senses that David is, is somehow hanging his hopes on the census, that he is, his words, he's delighting in it. He's, in other words, he's looking to the results of this census for confidence and security and comfort, and he's trusting in his military might to save him from his enemies rather than trusting in the Lord. And Joab says, uh, danger, danger. And the result of the census comes back. I didn't print that part of the passage for you. 1.3 million fighting men, 800,000 in Israel and 500,000 in Judah, which by any standard in that day would have been a formidable force. In fact, it's such a big number that most of the commentators say they probably smudged a little. Because the, the record of ancient you know, societies, there, had ne- there, was, there was hardly ever a, a figure of an army that was this big. I mean, there really are staggering statistics. And I think that's the point. That's the point this author is trying to make in this story. David is in real spiritual danger. He's been successful, right? He's, he's been granted by God victory after victory. The people have prospered under his leadership. The nation has extended its boundaries to unprecedented lengths. Everything is going great. The army is stronger than it ever has been. It's more loyal to David than it ever has been, which means David has more power than he has ever had before. And that's a place of real spiritual danger. That kind of success works against faith. That's the problem. It works against faith. Because with an army like that, here's what happens. See, this is why David's in such danger. With an army that size, David can't feel his need of God. Why does he need God? He's got the largest army in the world. He can just beat up whoever he wants to. And indeed, look what happens in his heart. He's turned away from trusting in God for his victories. He's He's no longer trusting in God to save him and deliver him from his enemies. He's, this is the way I want to put it. He's, become, he's becoming less dependent, more self-sufficient. Less dependent, more self-sufficient. And when that happens in the Bible, it's like red lights flashing and sirens going off everywhere. And there are all kinds of places where I could take us to kind of think through this. But one that really came to mind is if... If you know the story that happened, you know, kind of the story of Israel as they came out of slavery in Egypt and into the Promised Land, there's a particular part of the story in the book of Joshua, which is a few books to the left of 2 Samuel. And there in the book of Joshua, this ragtag group of people called Israel who serves Yahweh, the true God of heaven and earth, come out from being slaves in Egypt and come into this land that God has promised to deliver to them by his power. And they come to this city named Jericho. And Jericho at the time would have been known as one of the the, the most powerful, the most secure, the most stable, the most armed uh, and, you know, militarily secure places in that part of the world. They come to this, this city, and God tells them, I'm going to give you the city into your hands. And, and they have to be thinking, how in the world? is There's no way. I mean, they, they are far superior to us in numbers, far superior to us in weaponry. We have no shot. And God says, I'm going to give it to you, and here's what you're going to do. Here's the strategy. Put your guns away, you know, guns, they didn't have guns. Put your swords away, right? Put all of your, put all of your instruments of war, of war down, and we're just going to go for a walk. And we're going to walk around the city one, one time for, for, for a number of days. And then on the seventh day, they walked around the city seven times. And God says, when you get around there the seventh time, I want you all to shout as loud as you can. And when you shout, I'm going to deliver the city into your hands. And so here is this far superior group of, of people 
walking around the city claiming it to be God's. They have to be being, you know, jeered and taunted at from the walls. And yet, when they lift up their voice to shout to God, the walls come crumbling down. And God delivers the city into their hands. In a miraculous, I mean, no explanation for that except that God is powerful and he worked for his people. But in the next chapter, what happens is, is so they've occupied Jericho, and they've had this incredible military defeat, and then they look down in the valley at this little tiny city down there that's of real, no real consequence, and the city's called Ai. And so Joshua says, let's send some people down there to kind of scout it out. The scouts come back and report, you know, there's only about 2,000 people down there. There's no need to send the whole army. Let's just send, you know, two or 3,000 guys down there, and let's go wipe, wipe them out. Joshua doesn't pray. He doesn't seek the Lord. Hey, look, look what God just did. That's a little city. Let's just, so they send 3,000 people down there and they, and they get routed. Now what's happened? They've gone from being dependent to being self-sufficient. It's the exact same thing that's happened in David's life. I mean, look, think about David here in 2 Samuel 24, the king who has all power, who can do whatever he wants to, versus that ruddy young man who came to the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17, and there was a giant out there who was taunting God's people, and everybody was cowering in fear, and he said, what are, what are we doing, guys? We serve the Lord God of heaven and earth. Let's go get that guy. And he put, you know, five stones in his pocket and took a slingshot out against a, a giant that he had no business fighting, and he said, I don't come against you with sword or spear. I come against you, Goliath, in the name of the Lord my God. He had no business being on that battlefield. But his faith in God was amazing. It was tremendous. And yet what's happened is over the course of time, he's gone from being the young man who is willing just by faith in God of heaven and earth, the God of the armies of Israel, to go out against a, a giant that he had no business fighting. He's gone from being that person to being this king who wants to count up the number of his army so he can figure out, oh, God. Less dependent, more self-sufficient. And what this is trying to teach us is, is this is what sin is. I mean, this is kind of the underbelly of all the ways we struggle with sin. Sin's more than just breaking the rules. I mean, Martin Luther's famous quote is, you know, the reason you break any of the Ten Commandments is because before you break them, you've already broken the first. Right? That, in other words... There's something other than God that's your functional savior, that we are looking to something, either to power or to wealth or to a particular relationship or whatever it might be. We're looking to that thing for happiness and security. We're delighting. We begin to delight in that thing, whether it be a green arrow pointing up or the profit margin in our business or whatever it might be. And that thing comes into our hearts and becomes the core of, of our strength and our security and our peace. And the scripture warns over and over and over again about living this way. I was reading a couple of passages in Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 8, we read this. And I just want to read it to you. I should have made it part of our call to worship or something, but I didn't get there fast enough. Jeremiah says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes his flesh his strength. And that's exactly what David's doing here. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by water that sends out its root by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. 
Again, in Jeremiah chapter 9. Let me just read this to you. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows me, that I am the Lord, who practice steadfast love. And that word boast there is a very very uh, specific, very significant meaning to the people that Jeremiah was writing to. If you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, and if you haven't, shame on you. No, I guess it's a good movie, right? Uh, if you remember, they're on one of the battlefields in the movie, and the men are, are kind of trembling because they notice that the English army that they're going out against is, is far greater than theirs, and they're outnumbered, you know, three to one or whatever it might be, and they're all standing there saying, what are we doing here? We have no business being here. How in the world are we? I'm, I, you know, they're shaking, and they're contemplating leaving and going back to their farms and going back to their families, and then all of a sudden, William Wallace comes riding up, right? And his face is painted in that blue stuff, and... He starts to, he goes in front of him with his horse and he starts to yell at him and, ah, come on, we can, we can take these people, we're, you know, we can do this, you, you, we, you know, we can win this battle and he begins to rouse them up and then pretty soon, right, all of a sudden these men who've been cowering and thinking there's nothing we can do, all of a sudden now they're yelling and they're flashing the army on the other side of the, of the thing and taunting them. So something's happened, right? This man's come and somehow his words have given them courage or it's the whole, you know, it's the whole Drew Brees thing. Have you seen the commercial with the Drew Brees thing where he's getting his guys ready to go into the, the game? I can't even, it's a pretty cool cadence. I can't even do it, right? But, or the Ray Lewis, what time is it? It's game time. What time is it? Game time. And then all of a sudden these crazy people break out of the huddle and they're ready to kill somebody on the football field, right? What's happening? That's a boast. That's what, that's what the Old Testament means by a boast. It's a ritual boast. In other words, it was... It was a way to get people who were cowardly or fearful to go out into the world or go out into the battle with strength and security. So your boast is the thing which you're looking to for confidence and security. It's what gives you the energy and gives you the courage to go out into the world to do battle. And for David, it was a large army. But for others, it's knowing that you have enough money to provide for any need you might have. Whatever it might be, but what Jeremiah says is that those things won't ultimately work. That no matter how big your army is, there's always a bigger army. That no matter how much money you have, how deep your pockets might be, it can't protect you from cancer. And so we look for security and confidence and, and, and strength in all of these things, but not in God. But Jeremiah says, no, 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 don't do that. Boast in the Lord who shows steadfast love. That's where your boast should be. He's the one that should give you confidence that he's for you. And so what ultimately we're being called to here is to, if you want to use the terminology the scripture uses, David has really failed to live by faith and instead has chosen to live by sight. He, he's, he's even breaking with protocol here because Israel, by God's command, had no standing army. Uh, there was no standing army in Israel. And, and, and the point was that, you know, in a typical military engagement, it would go something like this. There would be a threat. There would be an enemy army that comes up against Israel. And then what they would do is they would sound a trumpet throughout all the land. And then, and then people would gather to the cause. And they would meet the threat. God would fight for them in battle. And then once the battle was over, they would go back to their wives and go back to their crops and carry on with their life as usual. But what David's wanting to do is David's trying to figure out how to have a standing army and to amass power so that anytime he might need to call on someone, there's no need to trust in God because he's got these you know, millions of troops waiting over here to do his bidding. But the funny thing is, is if you look in the scripture at the way that God leads his people out into battle against their enemies, 
he seems intent on intentionally putting them, constantly putting them at a disadvantage. And so I think of stories like Gideon in Judges chapter 6, where God sends them out against the Midianite force, which is so numerous, uh, the camels are like grains of sand on the seashore, the Bible says. And yet he tells Gideon, who has 40,000 men, you've got too many people. Excuse me? Let's take this 40,000 down to 10,000. Okay, I'm still a little little uncomfortable with this. God comes back, Gideon, you still have too many people. And the 10,000 becomes 300. And then God says, okay, take these 300 and go out, but leave your swords here. I want you to take a torch and I want you to take a trumpet. I mean, you want to say, are you really? Really? Are you kidding? And with 300 men armed with torches and trumpets, God roots the Midianite horde. There's another story in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and this is one of my favorites, where Jehoshaphat is leading the people of Israel out into army against this amassing of nations that have come against uh, the people of God. And God, the, the Lord says, this, this is the greatest thing. He says, here's what I want you to do, Jehoshaphat. Take the singers and put them in the front of the army. Now, last time I checked, singers are not necessarily the greatest warriors. Hey, I know, I know, Terry, with the exception of Terry. But I don't think you're going to put the cast of glee out in front of your army. You with me? Put the warriors in the back, put the choir in the front, and let's go. And yet they go out and they begin to sing praises to God, and as they sing praises to God, he strikes down the enemy. And they don't even have to lift a finger. And this is the way God does battle. Because he wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. And yet David is doing the exact opposite. He's, he's trying to amass power. God orchestrates our circumstances so that we have no choice but to fall into his hands. <laughs> that's what he, he wants us to fall into his hands and to look to his strength and steadfast love to save us. But David's sin is to look to the strength of his army for security. He's trusting in man. He's making flesh his strength. His boast and his military might. Not that he knows the Lord who practices steadfast love. And that's the sin underneath all sins. It's unbelief. And that's why God's so angry. Now, how does God deal with their sin? And the answer, of course, is the plague. If you look at verse 1, you'll see this striking language. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. Now, in First Chronicles, same story, told from a different perspective. We're told that it was Satan that incited David to take the census. Here, it's God who incites him. So which is it? And the answer, I think, is both. It's the narrator's way of saying that nothing, not even our sin or the activity of the supernatural powers of darkness is outside of the sovereign authority and control of God. Amen? And a lot of people have trouble with that. See, they read this and they say, see, see, this, this right here is why I'm not a religious person. I mean, this is, this is horrible. I mean, what would, why would, I, who wants a God like this? And, and this, this is the part of the sermon that just really kind of makes me nervous and scares me because... What we see here going on with this plague where God comes and begins to deal with the sin of his people is in many ways just a foreshadowing of what he promises to do at the end of the ages when he will come for the second time and Jesus will gather the nations before him to judge them and he will send those who are rebellious against him into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, what we call hell. We don't like to think about this stuff anymore. We don't preach sermons like the sermons that used to get preached on this. And I think of a sermon by Jonathan Edwards that became very famous, which many of you are probably familiar with, where he talked about the judgment of God against sin 
in, in a very profound way. The sermon was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, and you see here God sending a plague out against Israel for their sin, him, him killing 70,000 people and just decimating the people. And you think, who wants, you know, we, it's just hard for us to wrap our brains around that. But guys like Jonathan Edwards tried to make sense of this in talking about hell. And here's some of the things that, that Edwards said in that sermon about just the reality of our facing the wrath of God if we do not repent of our sins and turn to Jesus you know, our destiny being hell. He says things like this, and I just am, I want to read a couple of these passages from this sermon to you because it's just so, so hard, but yet so, I think, necessary. He says, for example, he says, Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell, and if God should not, should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf in your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all of your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have of stopping a falling rock. He goes on. The sermon never really turns and gets very cheery, by the way. It's just kind of... <laughs> he says, The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. And they increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course once it is loosed. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. You are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising, waxing more and more might. And there's nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and pressed hard to go forward. Just one more. He says later in that sermon, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God, which without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. We read things like that and we just say, I, I, I got a problem with that. I mean, I got a problem with this whole idea of, I mean, did what, whatever David did, was it really bad enough to merit a plague that killed 70,000? I mean, I've got a problem with that. And even more than that, the idea of hell is just problematic to a lot of people. And I would say the reason I think we have such a problem with this is really, you could boil it down to these two things, that we have domesticated the holiness and justice of God. I mean, we... We, we fail to see that God must punish wickedness, that the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice. And if he does not deal with sin according to his justice, then the world will literally come off its axis and be destroyed. C.S. Lewis understood this. And so in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Edmund comes with the white witch, you might remember the scene in the movie or read the book, and the white witch says, you know, he's a traitor and he's declared a traitor. And the white witch comes to Aslan you know, and, the, and his brothers and sisters are there, and they're saying, Aslan, do something, do something, do something. And the white witch says, Aslan knows that unless I have his blood as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. I mean, God must punish sin, or the world will come unhinged. But we've domesticated his holiness and justice. And we've done that because, on the other hand, we've domesticated sin. And you see it everywhere, you know, you know, sin, it's not that really, you know, not really that big a deal. And we've domesticated holiness and justice, and we've domesticated sin. And so we look at this, we say 70,000 men dead in under three days, and, we're, and we, how could God do this? I mean, why in the world, you're telling me I need to put my hands into a God, why in the world would I put myself into the hands of a God like that? I'll take my little green arrow pointing up, thank you very much. 
And if you look at the story, see, and you only see the wrath of God against sin, then it's absolutely frightening, I admit, and we should despair. And let me just say, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Jonathan Edwards was writing to you and trying to convince you of the danger you're in, that the prospect of meeting God on the day of judgment should be frightening. But the solution is not to run away from him in absolute terror. The solution, even in that case, is to put yourself into his hands and beg for mercy. And if you do that, he will be merciful to you. And I know that because of what happens next in the story. See, we've come to the part of the story. Every great story is like this, where there's a moment of absolute despair. When all seems lost, you know, you know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm trying to describe? If you've never experienced what I'm talking about in your life existentially, then you're not a Christian yet. Because you see, in every great story, there's this moment of complete agony and despair where the people in the story have run out of options. There's nothing left that can be done. Edmund must die or Narnia will be overturned and perish. Some moment where everything has fallen apart and there's nothing left to hope in. And and it's this moment of deep despair and hopelessness and fear. It's the very moment when the hero shows up. And that's exactly what happens in this story too. Because you see, the third thing I want you to see here is not just the census and the plague, but I want you to see the sacrifice. You see, the plague is going out in all Israel. People are dying. And then something strange happens. God says to the angel, enough. Stay your hand. He stops the plague early. And the way the text says it is he relented from the calamity, which means something like he changed his mind. Very uncomfortable language for people who, who, you know, it's just very uncomfortable because it means something like he changed his mind, God repented, he was sorry, or even he was brokenhearted and started to weep. But why? I mean, why did God show this incredible mercy in the midst of his wrath going out against sin? All of a sudden, there's this moment of mercy. And there are a number of things, okay? A number of things that happen that explain why God acted this way. The first is David repents, verse 10. And this is spiritual progress, right? We're told there his heart struck him after he numbered the people. And the last time there was an incident of sin like this in David's life, in 2 Samuel 11 with Bathsheba, it took Nathan confronting him to wake him up. This time... He, he wakes up immediately. He's immediately conscious stricken. And what we learn, remember, in Psalm 51, is that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That God does not despise a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That no matter how terrible the sin might be, God loves repentance and David repents. And God comes in in mercy. The second thing that happens here is that not only does David repent, but he, he, he turns away from his idols to trust in the Lord again. David chooses option C, right? Three years of famine. What, what are the options? I need, you know, three years of famine, three months before your foes to be pursued, or three days of pestilence in the land. And David chooses option C, but it wasn't because it was the shortest timeline. He says it right there in verse 14. The reason for his choice is, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. David puts himself in God's hands where he should have been all along. And this is the movement of faith. In other words, he learns something. He learns that there's no mercy with the false gods, whatever they might be. If the stock market becomes your god, then there's no mercy with that thing, because when it's a a red arrow pointing down, you're absolutely destroyed. But the Lord, this terrible, frightening God who strikes down 70,000 people, David understands his mercy is great. Because you see, David knows the spiritual truth. He knows that God has done things in such a way that ultimately he can be both just and merciful at the same time. 
So David stares down the absolute horror of the wrath and justice of God. And the result is, in seeing God in his wrath, he becomes awed by God in his mercy. And I say that because of the third thing David does. And the third thing he does here is he offers a substitute. See, he has a spirit, some kind of spiritual vision here. He sees the angel of the Lord standing on the high place, the threshing floor of Arana, we're told. First Chronicles, which tells the same story, says it this way. He says, David saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, and his hand, in his hand was a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So when David saw this angel, uh, he said to God, I have sinned, not the people. You see that there? Verse 17, let, let your hand be against me. And what he's saying is he's saying, I'm responsible for this. Strike me down. Kill me. Don't kill the sheep. What have they done? I'm the one who's guilty here. Destroy me. Let them go free. My life for their life. And what is that? It's, of course, a foreshadowing of the gospel, isn't it? Because it's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the clue, the clue to what's really going on in this passage is found in in the verse in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, where we're told that where this is happening, Solomon later in the story begins to build the temple on this site. And we're told that where all of this is happening, this this threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, that all of it is happening on Mount Moriah. That the mountain that, got, that, that, that um, David sees the angel standing between heaven and earth on is Mount Moriah. And one of the commentators makes the point that, that it is when God sees the angel standing on Mount Moriah that he has a change of heart. He remembers something. That he remembers what Mount Moriah is all about and, and it for, he begins to weep. God begins to weep because he looks down and he sees the angel standing on Mount Moriah and he remembers what happened there so many years ago and it, and it causes him to have a change of heart. That's complete speculation, but I like it. And, of course, what happened on Mount Moriah? Centuries before this, Abraham, in Genesis 22, stood on top of that mountain with a sword in his hand, stretched out over his son. And as he raised the sword to strike his son, God said, Enough. Stay your hand. And God provided a sacrifice, a substitute for Isaac. And Abraham offered the ram in the place of Isaac. There was a substitute. And in 1 Chronicles 3, we're told that it was on this mountain, this place where Isaac was, was, was spared for the sake of the substitute, right at this spot where all of this is going on in this story, that Solomon begins to build the house of the Lord, the temple. And of course, the idea of a substitute is what the temple is all about too, because it was to the temple that the people would bring their sacrifices for their sins, and their, these animals would be sacrificed in their place as substitutes. They would be killed in the place of the one who had sinned, their blood in the place of the blood of the guilty. But as we come to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is very clear to say that the blood of bulls and goats cannot produce the forgiveness of sins. And so what we have to see is that all of this ultimately points to the ultimate David who said, smite the shepherd so that the sheep could go free. All of this points to the ultimate David who said, let your hand be against me. It points to the ultimate situation where the sword of God's justice was coming down upon all of us because of our sin. And yet on the cross, it came down upon Jesus instead. That he was pierced with the sword of God's justice, the penalty for all of our sins. He was the ultimate substitute. And so on the cross, in the words of the old hymn writer, mercy and truth each other kissed, with peace and sweet accord, justice the sinner then dismissed, and sheathed her flaming sword. See, the way you stay dependent and not become self-sufficient, the way you live by faith and not by sight, 
is to be completely convinced of God's love for you and his commitment to you. In other words, you've got to know that God will come through for you. That's how your hearts get, get healed of its idols. You have to see God loving you in Christ Jesus and be convinced that being in his hands is better than a bank account that's flush with cash. And that's exactly what this passage... See, do you see the horrible wrath of God against sin? He hates it. And yet, in the frightening view of his wrath, does it begin to cause you to be awed by the steps that he would undergo to provide mercy for those who will seek refuge in him through the blood of Jesus? Think about it. God begins to weep before David makes the sacrifice. It wasn't the sacrifice that produced the change of heart. God set this whole thing up from the beginning, and all of it foreshadowed the day when Jesus would come to die in our place so that God could be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. And that's the promise of the gospel. See? Now, one last thing, and then I'm done. If that is the truth of the gospel, if the gospel is I do nothing and I gain everything, in other words, how does God put away my sins? How is it that God accepts me and brings me into his presence? It's not because I prove myself worthy. It's because of the work that Christ has done on my behalf and the, the sacrifice that he has made in my place. And if that's true, if I do nothing and I gain everything in, in the place of that, then it leaves me with one option, and that one option is this, then I must give anything. And that's what you see with David here, who realizes that this grace that he has shown is so overwhelming that it demands all of his life. He will not receive the gift that Arana offers to him. He says, I will not offer sacrifices that cost me nothing. And so all of it leads to his willingness to live a life of obedience uh, to the call of God. And so that's what we're called to, too. And we need to pray that God would come and do that in us. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that at the moment, the sword of the wrath of God was stretched out over us, that you came to offer yourself and that the sword of justice was plunged into your chest instead of into ours. But the result is that we can come now and not fear reprisal for our sins, not fear being, um, being judged, but that you, as the psalmist says, because of what you've done in Christ, you do not treat us as our sins deserve, nor do you pay us, repay us according to our iniquities. But with you there is forgiveness, and therefore you are feared. So even as we sing these songs now, cause us to fear you. Uh, that we might serve you, that you might be glorified in us, we pray. Amen. Fall into his arms. Uh, Because of all that he has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he might uh, not just display his justice against your sin, uh, but also grant you mercy if you flee to him and look to Jesus to save you. And so now, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then as I raise my hands over you, These are the hands of the Father now raised over you to bless you, not to strike you down, uh, but because his hand of wrath came down upon Jesus, now he raises his hands over us to bless us. So receive then the benediction this morning. And make this, make this your boast. Make these words your boast as you go out into the world. And and may your confidence and may your hope and may your joy rest in, in these words that God now speaks over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore.